So here's what we have so far in Revelation chapters 1 through 3. In summary, John receives a vision of the Son of Man. And we looked at the Son of Man and we found that he was a judge. And that he was going to judge the whole of mankind, good and bad. With an eternal judgment. Peter tells us judgment begins in the house of Adonai. So after the vision of the Son of Man, we had Yeshua's current judgment of the seven congregations that are in the east. And in each, John gives us a view of how those congregations were viewed in the eyes of Yeshua. Some members were warned of their compromising with the world. They were participating in the temple worship of other gods and with the paganism in some of the cities in which they lived. And this, of course, was seen as a failure to keep the most important command of the Torah, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and mind. He also corrected congregations for failing to witness Yeshua. Their zeal for God and their witness of God and Yeshua had waned. And also they were judged for failing to care for their neighbors in two ways. First, with their wealth but also with their witness of Yeshua. You see, there's no greater love for your neighbor than to witness the eternal salvation that you found in Yeshua to them. And if you think loving your neighbor or our Jewish people, and yet you fail to witness the salvation offered in Yeshua, you've deceived yourself. How can you say that you love someone and not tell them of the salvation and the blessing that you found in Messiah Yeshua? And Yeshua tells us that the whole of the Torah hangs on two commands. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then he tells us the second is like the first, to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he later gives us a truer understanding of the second, and that is to love each other as Yeshua loves us. Five of these congregations were failing at one or both of these, and they were in danger. The lesson for us is that these seven congregations of Yeshua in Asia Minor, while they were seven distinct congregations, and he tells them what they were doing right and what they were doing wrong, we have to understand that the problems that they have are not distinctly theirs alone, but they are things that have plagued the whole of Yeshua's congregations in the world and the people of God since that time. And so we might conclude they are representative of the complete congregations of Yeshua. Hence, we see the number seven for completion here. And we can see this in our country. The churches today with rainbow flags and signs saying all are welcome. Sexual immorality is rampant. They don't take a stand on abortion. And let us not forget the anti-Semitism in many of the churches. Friends, the attack on the congregations of Yeshua to conform to the world is ongoing and it will be ongoing until the end of the age and we are told here we must resist and we get the vision and the purpose of the congregations of Yeshua they were pictured as each having a menorah and Yeshua stands in the center of these menorot because they are to illuminate him to the world in chapters 2 and 3, he tells them of the things they are doing to illuminate him in the world and the things that they are failing to do to illuminate him in the world. If they obscure him from the world, he threatens to take their lampstand from them. There's no need for a menorah if you don't keep it lit. So again, in chapters 2 and 3, we get admonitions to these messianic communities in the east and the specifics of what they're doing right to witness Messiah and what they're doing wrong. And those things 
they are doing that do not reflect him. And so then we begin with chapter 4. The scene changes and it's going to be a heavenly scene as John is taken to the throne of God. And we find in chapter 4 verse 1. After this I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I heard at first speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone standing on it. He's given a command to come up and we're told by the trumpet sounding and the gates opening that this is the start of the day of the Lord. And I say the start of the day of the Lord because the feast of trumpets is also called Rosh Hashanah which means head of the year. It will be the start of the day of the Lord. And we can find this in Scripture. It's the start of the civil new year. And that's according to Scripture. It's not my opinion. If you look in Scripture, you're going to find that the year of release begins in the fall, as well as the year of Jubilee. By Jewish tradition, this is the time of the resurrection and the start of the Messianic age. The point being that when the first century congregations heard this read to them, the trumpet sounding and the gates of heaven opening, what would have come to their mind is the head of the year, the feast of trumpets and the start of the day of the Lord. And it would also bring to mind judgment because Rosh Hashanah, this day, is a day of judgment. And according to the understanding of the day, heavenly books are opened and judgment begins. And so this trumpet sounding at the gate to the first century Jewish person would have told them that this is Rosh Hashanah, this is the start of the day of the Lord. And so here in chapter 4, we're given a time frame of the events of the day of the Lord. We also see this start of the day of the Lord in the phrase, I will show you what must take place after this. And you can liken that to the term used by the prophets in the last days. And we might even consider that not only is it a vision of the last days, we might consider that some of these things that we're going to read about will also be realized in John's day or immediately following. Some of these things will happen soon after the letters are written, and yet they will happen again in, in the end of days. They are realized in the time frame of these congregations, so much so that there are some who read this book of Revelation and think these things have already happened and so it's up to us to restore the kingdom of heaven on earth. And yet we know that they're unrealized as well in the sense that it's going to happen again. And as we go through the book, I'm going to point to a few things that happened at that time that are described in the book of Revelation and yet are going to happen again. Next, we're given a vision of the throne room of God with its lampstand and its spirits, and the throne of God. And we spoke last week that we are getting a glimpse of the worship of God. Something I didn't cover last week. If you look at this account of the worship and others in Ezekiel and Isaiah, you're going to find that it resembles the temple worship here on earth. And rightly so, because God gave Israel the temple worship. Paul tells us that the people of Israel were given the covenants, the giving of the Torah, and the temple service. And with the temple service, portions of it resemble our Sabbath service today, the synagogue Sabbath service today, some of which was part of the temple service. 
And we've tried to fashion our service after this temple service as well. The temple worship consisted of the offerings, morning prayers, which were the Amidah and the Shema, along with the Ten Commandments and some psalms of praise. And when I say Amidah, understand that the Amidah that we find in our Siddurs isn't exactly the same. Some of it has been changed by the rabbis through the years, and it, it doesn't take much of a look at the Amidah to understand that things have been added. One of the most glaring additions that we find is the name itself. Besides the Amidah, it's also called the Shimon Esra, 18 blessing. And if you look in your Siddur, they're 19, with a 12th that has been added late in the first century. It reads, let there be no hope for informers, and may all the heretics and all the wicked instantly perish, and may all the enemies of your people be speedily exterminated. And may you swiftly uproot, break, crush, Subdue the reign of wickedness speedily in our days. Blessed are you who crushes the enemies and subdues the wicked. And so this blessing entered the Amidah after the destruction of the temple. It was never said in the temple. But the fact remains that most of what is in there, the prayers and the structure are from the temple service. And when we last met, we left off with the throne of God. And I want to pick up there again because I think it needs a bit more explanation and uh, we're going to pick up in verse 6. This is some mysterious stuff. Also before the throne there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures. And they were covered with eyes in front and back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third was like the face of a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around and even under his wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. And so we have before the throne a sea of glass. And we're going to see this sea of glass again in chapter 15. We have a sea of glass. And on one side of the sea are those who have overcome this age and they're singing the song of Moses. And on the other side, there are those who, because they followed the rulers of this age, will never be able to cross that sea. And so what we really have here, if you think about it, is an allusion to the exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea. The description, it would seem, has elements of the throne of God that was envisioned by Isaiah, as well as Ezekiel. And since Ezekiel is a bit more complete, we'll go there and without really reading the whole of chapter 1, we'll look at a few key things in the chapter. Verses 4 and 5. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal. And so in these initial verses, we have a cloud and lightning. And where should that take us? It should take us right back to Mount Sinai and the Exodus. And the giving of the law, because there we saw that God came down on the mountain and there was thundering and there was lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the blasts of the trumpet were exceedingly loud. Another thing to note is the throne of God is often seen as being in motion. And when it's seen in motion, it's called the Merkavah, the chariot. And it's called a whirlwind. And you might recall that the tanks of Israel are called the Merkavah. They are the chariots of Israel's army. Well, what we're seeing here is the chariot of God. 
In verse 5 of chapter 1, it says, And in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was that of a man, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, and their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed like burnished bronze. So now the throne is surrounded by living creatures, or in Hebrew, chayot. And this is one of the many types of angels that are spoken of in Scripture. There are differing types of angels. We have the cherubim, the seraphim, the chayot, and the ophanim. All have different purposes, and we're going to see them in Ezekiel here. And here we are getting a description of the chayot, and they sound very much like the four living creatures in the book of Revelation. And I should say this. I would love to sit here and tell you about these angels. However, it's nearly impossible because there's just not enough spoken about them in the word of God. And it seems like the author of these letters, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and John, bring out something different in their descriptions. Much the same way that if we would look at a picture, we would come up with different things. Notice Ezekiel brings out that they have feet like a calf, a burnished bronze. And we established what that meant uh, a few weeks ago. It means judgment. And we get it in Micah chapter 4, verse 13. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make thine horn of iron. I will make thy hooves of brass, and thou shalt beat into pieces many people. I will consecrate their gain unto the Lord and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. And so their feet are bronze. And we see that they're actually instruments of judgment used for trampling out judgment. And we see this in the Merkabah as well. It's likely the reason that the tanks are called the Merkabah. But we also have traditions in Judaism that speak of the mercy found at the throne of God. The souls of the righteous are beneath the throne of God. Listen to this tradition from Shabbat 152b. It says, it was taught by Rabbi Eliezer, the souls of the righteous are hidden under the throne of glory. As it is said, yet the soul of thine Lord shall be bound up in a bundle of life. And we see uh, something very similar in the book of Revelation chapter 6. And we'll look at that in a couple of weeks. In that the souls of the righteous are beneath the altar of God. And if we look in the book of Kings, we find mercy in the altar of God as well. It says, when news came to Joab, he fled to the tent of Adonai and grasped the horns of the altar. He's seeking mercy. And he goes to the tabernacle and grabs the horns of the altar. And the rabbi saw this aspect of mercy and protection in the throne as well as judgment, and they discussed a time when Moses went up to heaven and received the Torah, and the angels of God asked, why should he receive the Torah? And so Moses, according to the tradition, became frightened, and this is the tradition. God speaking, return them an answer, bade the Holy One, blessed be he, to Moses, sovereign of the universe, replied Moses, I fear lest they consume me with their fiery breath of their mouths. And the Holy One said, hold on to the throne of glory. And that's the Shabbat 88b. So not only do we see judgment, but we also see mercy and protection. So let's read on in Ezekiel verse 8. Under their wings and on their four sides they had hands of a man. All four of them had faces and wings, and on their wings touched one another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. 
Each of the four had the face of a man, and on the right each had the face of a lion, and on the left the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out upward. Each had two wings, one touching the wing of another creature on the other side, two wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire, like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. So again, these probably are the same creatures we find in the book of Revelation. These are called the Hayot, and they are covered with eyes. And no, they don't turn, but they always remain focused. Their eyes are focused on God, but they have eyes all around, so they may also be looking at the world as witnesses of the events of the world. Verse 15 of chapter 1 says, As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. There was an appearance and a structure of the wheels. They sparkled like chrysolite, and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be like a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in and any one of the four directions of the creatures faced. The wheels did not turn as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome. All four of the rims were full of eyes all around. When the living creatures moved, the wheels moved beside them. And when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go. And the wheels would rise along with them because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. And so now we have a different type of angel. I spoke of it earlier. These are the Ophanim. Ophanim means wheels. And so the throne of God is mobile. And this again is where the Merkavah comes into play. This is why it's probably named this way. Because the throne is mobile. Now, we spoke in week one about angels beyond the veil and that they were otherworldly. And here we have angels that are wheels, wheel angels. You might recall that Elijah took a ride into heaven on the Merkavah. Let's see the verse 25. We'll see if we can finish up Ezekiel here. Then there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. And above the expanse over their head was what looked like a throne of sapphire. And high above on the throne was the figure like that of a man. I saw from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal as if full of fire. And that from there down he looked like fire, a brilliant light surrounding him like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. And so this is what you have to look forward to in the kingdom. God's temple comes to earth. Not so much men with wings with halos around their head, but wheel angels, wheel angels intersecting other wheel angels, wheel angels within a wheel, living creatures, with the heads of a lion, an eagle, a bull, and a man. Angels who are on fire, the burning ones. They're burning ones. They're on fire for God, the seraphim. So those are the angels around the throne, and now you should be able to understand why you see very few teachings on the book of Ezekiel. You also see why 
I will more than likely never cover the book of Ezekiel <laughs> because we just don't know enough about these things. And just about everything you hear or read, if you do find a commentary, is imagination and speculation. And as I said earlier, these angels sound somewhat different with each prophet's explanation of them. The four living creatures are slightly different here than in the book of Revelation. Things are different in the book of Isaiah. They're not different angels, I don't think, but I think the author brings out differing aspects. However, it's Ezekiel who really gives us this more complete understanding. And we can more than likely attribute the difference between these men, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and John, but we're seeing the same angels, and so it's hard each one and describe them slightly different. And we have another type of angel associated with the throne of God, and that's the cherubim. It comes from the word keruv, and it means close ones. They are the close ones, and we see them on the Ark of the Covenant, which is the throne of God on earth, and we also see them guarding the way to the tree of life. Now the problem here is, is as much as we would like to understand the throne of God and I would like to stand here and explain all the aspects of the throne, really it's not that explainable and there are no real good explanations that I've really read. Nearly everything you hear again is going to be speculation or imagination because just not enough is written and it's probably because we couldn't understand it if it were written. The truth is beyond us. But there is a way that we can put it into some simpler terms. The very best way to understand the throne of God as it relates to this chapter in Revelation is to look at his earthly throne. If we look to the book of Exodus chapter 25 verses 8 and 9, it says this, Have them make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. And you are to make it all precisely according to everything that I will show you. The pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the furnishings within. Just so you must make it. And so Moses, understand that Moses was either taken to heaven, shown a vision of the throne of God, and he was to duplicate what he saw as best he could with earthly materials. And so let's look at the throne of God on earth of the tabernacle. We'll put up the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was the throne of God on earth. As we just read, the earthly tabernacle was made like the pattern shown in heaven. And let me say this, no one knows exactly how the Caribbean looked either. But this is an artist's understanding, a rendering. But even though it's just a rendering, it does make it more understandable. So it's, it's helpful. All the other illustrations that we're going to look at tonight are the same. So if we look at the ark and this artist's rendering of the Holy of Holies, the curtains, we're going to see the same thing Ezekiel describes with a little less mystery and given in a way that we can understand. And first, the ark will have cherubim on top, and the cherubim are slightly different than the seraphim in the book of Isaiah. And they will not have the face of a man, the face of an ox, the face of a lion, the face of an eagle, as in Ezekiel. But they will have the face of a man. Some traditions say that one of them has the face of a man, and one of them has the face of a woman. The cherubim are called the close ones. They are right on the ark, or on the throne, and here this artist's rendering of the curtains that would have been in the tabernacle, and you see that above that, we have the Chaim hovering over the ark in the Holy of Holies. They are woven into the curtains, but the cherubim are even closer because they're right on the throne of God. 
And so if we were standing in the Holy of Holies, we'd see the cherubim, and then above them would be the chayot flying above the ark. Let's put the ark back up. Whoever rendered this one, they have the face of a man, and they have the face of a woman. Next, the cherubim have their wings toward each other, their eyes facing one another, but they're not looking so much at one another. They're looking at the dwelling presence of God, which dwelled as a beam of light between the cherubim. And this is the throne of God on earth, and it's made after a heavenly copy, and these heavenly creatures have their eyes on God, a lesson for us to always keep our eyes upon God. In the ark, we're going to find some things that are teachings of the Messiah. We have the stone tablets received from the mountain by Moshe. And they are an obvious picture of the Messiah because he is the word of God made flesh. He lived out those commandments that are on those stone tablets perfectly. But in the ark, remember, it's not the first set of tablets, but it's the second set of tablets. The first set are broken, but the second are received by Israel and they're going to be placed in the ark. And again, that's another picture of the comings of Messiah. The first time he came, he was put to death or broken by the leaders of Israel. After his death, again because of the leaders of Israel and their teachings, he's going to be rejected by our Jewish people. But the next time he comes, he's going to be received by our Jewish people and they're going to say, Baruch Ababa Shem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now also in the ark we find a scroll of the law and that's going to be important later as we're going to look at a scroll, and we find the tablets as well. We'll also find a jar of manna, a picture of Messiah. He's the bread of life come down from heaven. And we're going to find the staff of Aaron, a dead branch that budded and blossomed, came back to life, another picture of the Messiah. It was a dead branch. It was resurrected and came to life, and it flowered and produced fruit, just as Messiah did, as he is the branch of Adonai. Now, the dwelling presence of God dwells between the cherubim. And I want you to notice that the ark was on poles. It had to be mobile, just as the throne in Ezekiel had wheels. And so the ark is also a picture of the entrance of Gani Din, the Garden of Eden. On the east side of the garden, remember, God placed two cherubim and a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. Here in the Holy of Holies, we have two cherubim, Adonai dwelling between them, and it was seen as a beam of light rising up to the heavens. Well, here's a picture of the gate. You're seeing it there, kind of like a cutaway of the tabernacle. Now let's see if I can explain this to you. For those of you who have been in the temple study, it will be a little bit easier. But this is the Holy of Holies, and it was seen as the entrance to the kingdom of God or Ganadin. And now everything that's in the tabernacle and in the temple is going to teach you about returning to this place, this entrance. In other words, it teaches of repentance. It teaches you to turn, shuv. And as you would move into the tabernacle or the temple, the teachings are going to be on returning to God and returning to this gate. We begin our journey, we're outside the tabernacle of God, we're in the world. And if we were a non-Jew, we were one without God, and someone witnessed God to us, we wanted to draw near to God. Or if we were a Jewish person who had sinned and wanted to again draw near to God, the very first thing that we would come to in the tabernacle is the altar. 
teaching us that the wages of sin are death. And we have sin in our lives, so we need an offering. We're unclean. And in our uncleanness, we cannot go before the holy God. And so the very first thing we come to is the altar. And of course, the sacrifices teach of the atoning death of Messiah. Next, we would come to the laver, and it was for washing your hands. The priests would have to wash their hands and feet before they went into the holy place. It wasn't an option. It wasn't a ceremonial washing because they would die if they didn't. It teaches us about the importance of purity. And after we receive salvation through Yeshua's sacrifice, we are commanded by Yeshua to be immersed in water. And when we come up out of the water, Paul tells us that we are new creations in Messiah. And as such, we are to go forth and live lives of purity and holiness. So to enter into the presence of God, we have to be cleansed of all impurity. Put up a picture again of the holy place. There we go. Once in the holy place, the teachings are about our walk with God. And first we come to the seven branch minerah, the only light within the holy place. And while Yeshua tells us he's the only true light in the world, he's also called us to be lights of the world. And note that we have no light of our own, but we are to reflect his light to the world, teaching us that we are to illuminate Yeshua, just as we saw in weeks two and three. We are to illuminate Yeshua to the world around us. And not just that, but the menorah is the only light in the holy place, teaching us that our light is to come from Yeshua alone, not worldly darkness or what other people call light, but the light of God alone. And then on the other side of the room, on our journey through the tabernacle, we find sustenance. We find the bread of the presence, teaching us that our sustenance comes from God, that Yeshua is the bread of life. And there's a tradition that when the priests ate the bread of the presence after it was replaced, after seven days, it was just as warm and as fresh as the day it was put on the table. And also, there's another tradition that says that a piece of the bread the size of an olive was enough to satisfy each and every priest. And I always thought of how representative that was of our Messiah, the bread of life. No matter if you've known him for all your life or you've known him for a day, with Yeshua you are equally blessed and satisfying. Yeshua will sustain you. Finally, we have the altar of incense where the priests would stand each day and offer daily prayers, teaching us of our obligation to pray and commune with God. It's the reason we were created, to have fellowship with God. And with this understanding, you can see why the disciples thought of the followers of Yeshua as the temples of the Holy Spirit. Now, after these lessons of our walk, then before us is the Holy of Holies with the seraphim and the ark, symbolizing the gateway to the covenant. Put the, yeah, you got the ark back up. With that thought in mind, let me ask you for a minute. If this is seen as the gate to Ghani Din, to, the, to paradise, what would you find if you could go to the other side of that Ark of the Covenant? You could go beyond the Holy of Holies. You got through the gate. What would you find? You'd find the garden, kingdom of heaven. But what else? And I'll give you a clue because it's in the book of Ezekiel. And it will come and we're going to see it. The third temple, the dwelling place of God. You see, I believe that that is why there's a difference in the heavenly temple described in Ezekiel and the ones on earth. Remember, the Ark is a picture of of the entrance or the gate but god has a temple inside that gate this is the throne of god on earth the same as you saw when we looked at the gate of a city 
Remember we talked about how at the gate of a city, the king would have a throne at the gate of the city, judging who could enter and who couldn't enter. It's no difference here. This is the throne at the gate. And so the throne is on wheels. It's mobile. And it had the souls of creatures within the wheels. They have eyes all around and their eyes are focused on the world, not missing a thing. They're witnesses. And we can see this on the earthly ark as well. They never took their eyes off of God. Notice that the ark has poles. It's mobile. And this is the way it proceeded. The priests carried the ark so that they never took their eyes off the throne. Two walked forward and two walked backward, never taking their eyes off the throne of God, just as the angels do not turn as they carry the throne. And so in the earthly throne of God, the Ark of the Covenant, the priests serve as Ophanim. They're like the wheel angels. And this is a Torah picture of what is in heaven, and it's one that we can a little more easily understand than we read in the book of Ezekiel. Amen? Now, we can look at this throne as a Torah picture of what we are to be as well. We folks are to be the temple of God on earth. We have to have the word of God in our hearts. Our sustenance has to be Yeshua, the bread of life, and our hope must be in the branch of the Lord, the resurrected Messiah. We're to move about. We're to witness him to the world. We're not to take our eyes off of him. Well, we're going to get into chapter 5 next. And this is going to be a look at the coronation of King Messiah. And we're not going to cover much of it today because of time. And so we'll return to this next time and we're going to cover some of these verses more completely because this is actually the coronation of the king. And a statement made in chapter 4, I want you to remember as we go into chapter 5, remember it said, At once I was in the spirit and there before me was someone sitting on the throne. Someone, but who? In Ezekiel, it said high above the throne was a figure like that of a man. Didn't say God on the throne as Isaiah did, for my eyes have seen the king, Adonai Sevaot, but they see a man. John and Ezekiel see someone. So let's go to verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And so what is this scroll? Well, we need to understand the scroll in the context of what's taking place. It's a coronation of a king. He's being crowned. And it's going to be the focus of chapter 5, the coronation of King Messiah. And so in chapter 5, we're going to get a glimpse of our Messiah's coronation. We're going to get a, a shadow of the coronation as well if we look to the book of Kings, Second Kings. There's all kinds of shadows of the things that are going to happen in the past because we're told that which has been is that which shall be. That which has been done is that which shall be done. Okay, so we're going to go to 2 Kings and we're going to look at this as a Tanakh picture of the coronation. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she proceeded to destroy the whole royal family. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Jehoram, the sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Isaiah, and stole him away from among the royal princes who were about to be murdered. She put him and his nurse in a bedroom to hide him from Athaliah. He was not killed. He remained hidden with the nurse at the temple of the Lord for six years while Athaliah ruled the land. 
And this is really amazing in light of Messiah. Athaliah is the ruler of Israel. She's the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, who were extremely wicked, and she is as well. Athaliah is ruthless, as we see, power-hungry. She actually ruled the land through her son. He was the rightful king. He was her puppet, but he dies. And so that's why she proceeds to slay the rest of the royal seed. She wants to solidify her rule in the land. And really, you know, if you think about this, she's a picture of the rulers of the present evil age who crucified the Lord of glory and the prophets of God throughout history and has persecuted and sought to destroy all the people of God. Now, they hide the king away in the temple for six years. And that's amazing because Yeshua has also been hidden from the world in the temple of the Lord. And he will not return until after 6,000 years with the Lord. A day is as a thousand years and a thousand years are as a day. So let's read verse 4 and 5. In the seventh year, Jehudiah sent for the commanders and units of a hundred, the Karaites and the guards, and had them brought to him at the temple of the Lord. He made a covenant with them and put them under oath at the temple of the Lord. He showed them the king's son. He commanded them, saying, This is what you are to do. You are in three companies that are going to go on duty on the Sabbath. So I wanted to read this to show you that this whole scenario is happening in the seventh year on the Sabbath. We're getting a picture of the 7,000-year plan of God in the story of Joash. He's hidden for six days. He takes his rule on the seventh, on the Sabbath. And this is our, he's not hidden for six days, he's hidden for six years, excuse me. And this is taking place on the Sabbath. Just as the coronation of Messiah that's being described in the book of Revelation is taking place in the seventh millennium with the Lord. A day is as a thousand years and a thousand years are as a day. Let's read verse 11. Jehodiah brought out the king's son and put a crown on him and presented him with a copy of the covenant and proclaimed him king. They anointed him and the people clapped their hands and shouted, long live the king. What we need to understand today, first, remember this for a little later. We have all the people clapping their hands and proclaiming Joash king. That's part of the coronation ceremony. It's the acclamation of the king. And we're going to see this later in the book of Revelation as Yeshua is proclaimed king. Not only that, but the king at the coronation is presented with a scroll. And what's on the scroll? Well, it's the Torah. It's the very thing he has to rule with. It is the measure by which he must judge the nation in the future. The measure of the world will be judged by King Messiah He will use the scroll of the Torah, the word of God, to judge the world. It was how Yeshua was judged. It will be how every living creature will be judged. Yeshua was judged by the Torah, and he was found to having lived it out perfectly. He had no sin. And not only that, the king of Israel was given a copy of the scroll, and then he's actually to write one for himself from that copy of the scroll. So let's just finish, and then we'll move on to another passage here. When Athaliah heard the noise made by the guards and the people, she went to the people at the temple of the Lord. She looked, and there was the king standing by the pillar, as was the custom. And the officers and the trumpeters were standing, were beside the king. And all the people of the land were rejoicing, blowing trumpets. Then Athaliah tore her robes and called out, Treason, treason! Jehodiah and the priest ordered the commanders of the units of a hundred who were in charge of the troops to bring her out between the ranks and put the sword to anyone who followed her. 
For the priest had said she must not be put to death in the temple of the Lord. And so they seized her. As she reached the place where the horses entered the palace ground, there she was put to death. And so remember, after the king is coronated, he's given a scroll and judgment begins. Athaliah and her followers are sentenced to death. And this is very much what we're going to see in the book of Revelation. But what I want you to see here is that when a king is crowned, he's given a copy of a scroll. And in fact, a copy of the Torah. And then he must write one for himself. Deuteronomy chapter 17, if you read it, tells us that he has to write a copy for himself because he's to rule the land and make his judgments accordingly. And the whole of the story is a pattern for the book of Revelation. Each king was to have a copy of the Torah. Again, why? Because you can't rule the land, you can't make judgments if you don't know the laws. Just as simple as that. And so the scroll is the Torah. It's the standard by which the judgment of the world is going to begin. Another thing about the scroll and this is huge. When we look at the scroll in Revelation, the Torah is also a history of God's people. You know, we read it and we see the righteousness of Abraham. And so we know what his reward is going to be. And then we read of the king of Salem and how wicked he was. And we know what his judgment's going to be. These are just two examples within the history that's found within the Torah. It tells us of the people, good and bad. And I want you to notice that the scroll in Revelation is going to be written on both sides. And so what does that mean? Because I can tell you ancient scrolls are not written on both sides. Typically, they're written on one side. And the other side is smooth. One side is smooth for writing. And the other side is, on a lot of scrolls, is kind of fuzzy to protect the writing on the other side when it's rolled up and unrolled particularly Sephardic scrolls. If it were written on both sides, it wouldn't last long. The ink of the scroll sits above the parchment. It doesn't soak in. It sits above the parchment. And so it's vulnerable to being chipped off. And if you have it chipped off, then it's no longer kosher. It has to be repaired or replaced. If you look at Sephardic scrolls, you'll find that they last much longer. I have Sephardic scrolls that date back to 300, 400 years old, some 500 years old. And it's for this reason, because they're so soft on the one side that they just don't chip off the writing. So what does it mean that they're written on both sides? Well, it means that this scroll is full and complete. The book of Enoch speaks of scrolls being opened as well in chapter 47 it says in those days i saw him the ancient of time while he was sitting upon the throne of his glory and the scroll of the living ones were opened before him and all his power in heaven and above and his escorts stood before him and the hearts of the holy ones are filled with joy because the number of the righteous has been offered the prayers of the righteous ones have been heard and the blood of the righteous has been admitted before the Lord of the spirits. So here too it speaks of this completeness because the full number has been offered, a concept that we're going to see later. And so understand, the scroll is complete. It's written on both sides. There's no more room to write. It has the history of 6,000 years written upon it. So this scroll is the history of the people of the world, good and bad. 
you see here something you may not know about the Torah. We also only understand its meaning in part. And in fact, that's apparent in Yeshua's teachings. His teachings are commentary on the Torah. And when people of the day heard him teach, they often thought he was in violation of the Torah or that he was replacing the Torah because so often his teachings varied from the teachings of the day, the understanding of the day. And that's why before he gives the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, do not think that I've come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And that word for fulfill there means to give true understanding. And we see this true understanding, particularly on his teaching of adultery. In chapter 5, verse 27, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And, you know, we took adultery to mean you're not going to lie with another man's wife. But Yeshua tells us that's not what's meant. It's meant that you don't even look at another woman in that way. And if you do, you've committed adultery in your heart. And since God judges the heart, you've sinned. And so what I'm trying to get at is we really understand little of the Torah. The point being, what we are seeing here in Revelation is the complete Torah. Not only the laws, but the history of the world contained within, and it's full, complete. The Torah outlines what's acceptable in God's kingdom, and Paul tells us that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. He says, all scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. When you read this word scripture here, it refers to the Torah and the prophets, what we call the Old Testament. But what it really is, is God's Torah, God's Tanakh. And when we couple it with our Messianic writings, it's a complete book. Because when he says scripture in this verse, the only scripture they had at this time was the Torah, and the prophets, the messianic writings were not written yet. Not even one gospel had been written when he wrote this letter. The Torah is, as John says so concisely, whoever commits sin transgresses also the law, for sin is transgression of the law. And so we find that it is the measure of sin and it outlines the judgments of God. And Romans 6 tells us this about it. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Messiah Yeshua our Lord. The rewards for conforming to the will of God, Yeshua speaks of. Whoever practices and teaches these commands will be great in the kingdom of heaven. And so we saw this in the judgment of the seven congregations as well. They were judged on their performance of the commands or the lack of their performance in keeping the commands. They were either rebuked or commended. Verse 2 of chapter 5 says, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who's worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. And I wept, and I wept, because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll to look inside. And so why does John weep? Because there's no one worthy to open the scroll. Because everything depends on opening the scroll. It's the measure of the judgment of the wicked. It holds the judgment of the wicked. It's the very things the soul of the righteous are crying out from beneath the altar. 
in chapter 6, crying out for vindication. But it also contains the reward of the righteous, the mercy of God. It's the Torah, and everything depends on the contents of the scroll being revealed in its truest sense. And that's the important part of it, the truest sense. And who revealed the Torah to the world in its truest sense? I just told you, and Revelation will confirm it now. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed, and he's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Messiah is worthy to open the scroll, and we'll look more at the coronation of the king next week.